BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends, and a big welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Now, given America's demographics, there's a good chance that you are a boomer. Since boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, still make up more than 25% of our population. Because there have been so many of you for so long, boomers more than any other generation have gotten all the attention. And they've also had a lot of power in terms of home ownership and individual wealth and consumer spending and political power. 25% of registered voters, 38% of the vote, and 58% of Congress. Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, all boomers. But now that most boomers have reached retirement age, the big questions are, what did boomers actually accomplish? What's their lasting contribution, if any? And what's America going to look like post-boomer? Those are just some of the questions our good friend Philip Bump, Washington Post columnist and frequent guest on our roundtable, addresses in his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Philip Bump, well, we have welcomed you to the roundtable several times, so it's nice to have you on the uh, on the real thing, the real Bill Press <laughs> podcast. Welcome. They, I'm, I'm stunned. The roundtable's not the real thing, Bill. You didn't tell me this. I'm heartbroken. But thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. And, uh, of course, we are talking about, and uh, congratulations uh, on your uh, new book, which I have really enjoyed and learned a lot from. The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in uh, America. So, Philip, first of all, I, I, I feel like a college student here, but I, I feel I have to start with defining some terms, sure. right? So let's make sure everybody understands baby boomers. Who are they? So baby boomers uh, generationally are people who were born 1946 to 1964. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's important because that is the only generation that the Census Bureau recognizes as a demographically distinct generation. There was a surge in births actually about halfway through 1946 uh, that lasted uh, about the next 19 years until 1964. And that demographic shift, that increase in births over that period is why this group is identified uh, by the federal government as a a distinct thing. So, you know, we've obviously have all these other generations that exist that we talk about, Gen X and millennials and yada, yada, yada. And those are all sort of uh, 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 contrived, uh, com- you know, sort of constructed after the fact, uh, in part just because we like to talk about generations as a cohort. Uh, but it really is the baby boom is a unique thing demographically. And that really fundamentally is one of the key points of the book. 
uh, so you point out uh, this is sort of the uh, the result of a lot of horny soldiers returning from World War II. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when we're talking about something that happened for 19 years, it's it's pretty well, clear that the, yeah. the horniness abated. <laughs> this is this, the things right. you never thought you'd talk about on the radio. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, this is there were a lot of factors that came into play, including the fact that after World War II, America saw this massive economic boom. Right? There was this, just this all of these factors. I mean, there were there were actual demographic factors of why people held off and having kids and all of a sudden they started having kids at a, at a, at a, at a rapid pace uh, that weren't necessarily related to the war. Um, yeah. But that mm-hmm. we saw this happening over the course of 19 years, you know, there were a lot of factors that came into it, including economics, which I also think is important. Right. So is it just the size of the baby boomers that, that make them this distinct generation, the only one we recognize, or is it is it just quantity, or is there any quality attached to it too? I mean, what's there? What's the big deal about the baby boomers? Well, yeah, I mean, the, it is definitely the reason that we I identify the baby boom as this distinct generational event is because of size. And when I say size, I mean births. Uh, it's one of the fascinating aspects of the baby boom is that uh, it actually grew in size even after the boom ended because after the baby boom, immigration laws were liberalized. So we started uh-huh. seeing more people move to the United States. And so there are a lot of immigrants to the United States who technically fall into the baby boomer category, even though they are not baby boomers in the sense that they were born during the baby boom. So the baby boom actually continued to grow until about the year 2000, which is, is you know, sort of uh, remarkable. But the reason that the baby boom is important isn't simply because of the number of births. It is instead because of the effect that those births had. And so mm-hmm. the, the first part of the book really focuses on right. understanding how the baby boom's arrival really broke so many aspects of America. And I don't mean that pejoratively, but like literally all of a sudden you have this massive, you know, from from 1950 on essentially all of a sudden you have all these kindergartners and you got to start yeah. building elementary schools right and yep. then they get to be middle school age and they get to be high school age and then they graduate from high school and what are you going to do with them right and you, you know so a lot of them go to college because there's not a lot of other things to do with a lot of them uh, go into the workforce and fill jobs you know a lot of them get drafted into vietnam and so so you see this pattern Oh, you know, decade after decade as the baby boom ages, where all of a sudden you have to accommodate this group of people who is suddenly far larger than it used to be. And that's really important right now because we we under recognize that now so many of those boomers have reached retirement age. And that's what's driving a lot of this focus and attention on older people right now is that all of a sudden, for the first time, we have this massive percentage of the American population that is older and needs services that are dedicated to older people. And so we sort of re- reached that uh that period in the span of the baby boom, and now it's just breaking new things. What percentage of the population was the baby boom at its best, and what is it still today? So in 1945, the population in the United States was about 140 million people. Over the course of the next 19 years, about 76 million babies were born, right? So that's more than 50% of the 1945 population uh, was Whoa. born over the course of the next 19 years, right? So mm. that's, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. that's a massive percentage. So how, so how about today, Philip? But almost a quarter of the population are baby boomers. Still. So baby boomer age. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, one of yeah. the things that's fascinating, and I think a central point of uh, the tension that we see in the United States politically and economically, is that on a one-to-one basis, there are almost as many millennials at the age of 40 as there were baby boomers at the age of 40. Again, the baby boom has grown since then. Uh, but the, you have this, all of a sudden, you have this huge, massive population of people who are much younger and 
demographically distinct from the baby boom and who are competing with them for resources. So as the baby boomers need, you know, federal and state dollars going toward things like senior housing and Medicare and things like that, you have younger people who need housing and need childcare and they need, you know, funding for schools. And so you have for the first time, the baby boom having to compete with another large generation, uh, which we hadn't seen uh, over the course of the baby boom to this point. Right. Now, obviously with those numbers, uh, you, you've talked about the impact that they've had in so many areas, like having to build schools, right? Having to build new colleges. I mean, all, all, buying new cars, making new cars, all that kind of stuff. They had a lot of power, right? Economic power and right. political power. Um, I, I, I'm turning here to page 27 uh, of your book, right? We're still talking in the first part of the book about the impact of the baby boom. Uh, you summarize, if I may quote you, Philip. Boomers made up about 23% of the population in 2019 and 2020, but constituted 43% of homeowners, held 50% of the wealth, and owned 55% of corporate equities and mutual fund shares. They made up 25% of registered voters, 38% of the vote in 2018, and 58% of members of Congress. That's a lot of power. Sure. So I guess you ask, what do they do with that power, right? Right. Well, I mean, and it's important to recognize that some of those manifestations of power are correlated to age, right? You're more likely to own a home as you age because you have more money to do so. You're more likely to vote when you're older because in part because you're more likely to own a home and so you're not moving around as much and you have, you know, more stable career. Uh, You know, there are age limits. You can't join Congress until you're at least in your 20s, right? So it's, you know, it's not as though you're competing with teenagers for congressional jobs, Uh, you know, unless of course, you have teenagers lying and saying, you know, right? <laughs> who knows oh, yeah. these days, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, so so part of this is simply that the boomers are older and these are manifestations. But then, the, of course, you layer on to that that there are just so many of them, right? There are just so many baby boomers. If you look at the average age of Congress over time, you can see that once baby boomers reach congressional age, the the, age, the average age of Congress shifts downward and then travels along with the baby boom until basically about 2020 when it starts to dip back down again. We start to see this transition away from the baby boomers. But yeah, I mean, this is, you know, even if there were nothing nefarious and, you know, it's clearly not the case that baby boomers all sit around and, you know, vote collectively about how they're going to screw over mm-hmm. younger people. Uh, but simply by virtue of scale and by virtue of where they are in their lives, they wield enormous power. And that's now being contested. Politically, uh, did boomers or are boomers um, more to the left or more to the right politically? So baby baby boomers are fairly evenly split. Uh, they tend to be a bit really? more Republican <clears throat> than Democratic. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, not what people expect. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's important to remember that when we think, for example, about the ways in which older, particularly white Americans have a particular uh, approach to politics that manifests in things like made, make America great again and Donald Trumpism, things like that. You also have the central re- uh, opposition to Donald Trump. The resistance uh, was led by older college educated white women. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it is it is not the case that this this group is uh, a, a behemoth, but it's also the case or, you know, it's at least not, you know, it's not homogeneous in terms of its politics, but it's also the case that the Republican Party is much older and much whiter than the Democratic Party. And as such, baby boomers, particularly uh, white male baby boomers, make up a disproportionate part of the Republican Party. And so when we talk about Republican politics, we're often talking about white male baby boomers. Is it still true 
or I guess I might ask whether it's ever true, that uh, as people grow older, they get more conservative. It certainly, has that proven true of the boomers? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this is sort of one of those things we take for, you know, as a sort of a staple of our understanding. Right, for politics. granted. But... Yeah, you know, I mean, I, the, the the two things I say about that is, first of all, that, you know, the history of social science isn't that old. You know, we, we talk, talk about polling, we talk about research. You know, this stuff only goes back to like the middle of the 20th century. And so when we talk about what happens to generations as they age, we really don't have that robust data set in the United States. Uh, it is the case that baby boomers were much more democratic than when they were younger than they are now. And there's mm -hmm. certainly some speculation that part of the reason they shifted to the right is to protect resources like political power and homeownership and you know property values and things along those lines. And I think there's validity to that. But I also think that even if it were the case, which again, I don't think is robustly demonstrated that people get more conservative as they get older, the young people today look very different than any group of Americans in the past. It is a much more diverse group of people. It has a much higher density of Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Black Americans, uh, relative to the white population. So is it the case that that group of people mm -hmm. is going to get more conservative as it gets older? I mean, it's certainly, you know, Black and older Americans aren't more conservative, right? right you know, Hispanic, right. you know, there's, you know, Hispanic population isn't as heavily Democratic as Black. But, you know, are those people going to become more conservative as they get older? I, I don't know that that's a fair assumption to hold with this population anyway. Um, I was struck um, <laughs> when you talk about boomers getting older and whiter, uh, they are older now and whiter. Um, they, uh, a lot of them moved to Florida too. Sure. Uh, and you went down there to what is probably the capital of Boomerville, right? The villages. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they, they, they'd embrace Is this that. where old boomers go to die? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, some. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like literally, yes, it is the case that this is this is a place where a lot of older Americans, including people who were older than the baby boom, of course, the villages yeah. <laughs> was welcoming retirees before boomers were ignored of retirement age. Uh, but it is this fascinating subculture of senior life that I think is worth people understand it because it is very specifically tailored to older Americans. It is tailored to older Americans through the lens of an idealized sort of American experience, which I doubt many of them actually lived through, you know, just like small town living and you go to the town square and you party and it's very heavily white and it's very heavily conservative. And it really is, you know, when Donald Trump talked about making America great again, yeah. the villages tries to affect that. And one of the things that's fascinating about the villages is even now when I was there, uh, you see a tension between older and younger, even though the younger people are only 55 so you got to be at least 55 to get in there and then you know they built from north to south and so at the northern end are all these people who are much oh, older than huh. the people who are now just reaching retirement age and moving into the southern end and there's like tension like just within huh. the villages itself uh, but yeah i mean it really is like it, what it really does is highlights questions about what happens as americans age and where do they live and what do those communities look like which is still unresolved so in all of your research um among boomers, particularly, uh, again, whiter than than subsequent generations, uh, what traces did you find or evidence did you find of uh, outright racism? I mean, is the replacement, white replacement theory, the fear of that uh, big among boomers? Is this where, is this the population where most of that is coming from? Yeah. It, the, when you look at polling of white Republicans, for example, white Republicans see 
whites and Christians as being similarly affected by discrimination as Jewish people or black people or Hispanic people. And if you look at the, the population of people who is reacting negatively to America's perceived changing demography, it's white Republicans. Uh, and again, going back to the point I made a little while ago, white Republicans tend to be a group that is older and it tends mm -hmm. to overlap yeah. heavily with the baby boom. So it's not the case that you know, that every single white older baby boomer is someone who is worried about white replacement theory and tunes and Tucker Carlson every night. It is the case, however, that it is disproportionately white Republicans who tend to be older, uh, who are elevating those things as concerns and reacting negatively to it in polling. Uh, and so there are obviously, you know, unfortunately, yeah, racism is a multi-generational endeavor, uh, but it is absolutely the case that a lot of what we're seeing around race in our current national conversation is targeted to white older Republicans who happen to be baby boomers. You mentioned um, the tension between North and South in the villages. Um, isn't there also, it's, I, at least I've picked up tension between boomers and subsequent generations, particularly between the uh, boomers and the millennials, right. the millennials feeling, you know, yeah, Boomers, you were big, but you know we're going to have less of a chance to make it than you did, right? right? You you left us not necessarily a better world, but but a tougher one to, in terms sure. of buying a home or getting a job or whatever. Yeah, this is a really really fascinating issue that I think a lot of the nuance sort of gets left out of, right? So so just to. First of all, remember that the baby boom has existed in this bubble of attention for its entire existence. And now that's popped, right? That yep. they are no longer the center of American thought and concern, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, yeah. and, you know, on an individual basis, this, you know, it's not as though every baby boomer is railing at young people, but, you know, this, this is a shift. This is a shift in how America works. Mm -hmm. Also remember that young people can make themselves present in the lives of older people in a way that wasn't possible 40 years ago. You can oh, get yeah. on social media and you can be annoying to old people on TikTok and call them <laughs> Boomers, and, you know, like you can do all these things that that boomers couldn't do to their elders, and so you have this existing generational tension that's heightened uh, by the simple fact that you can get in people's faces in a way that you weren't able to do so before. Uh, and it is also the case that millennials have real concerns about a things like home ownership and college debt and things along those lines that weren't uh, the same issues for older Americans, but they also have political issues that they're more worried about that have never been on the radar screen of boomers to the same extent, for example, climate change and LGBTQ yep. rights and things yep. like that. And so there are a lot of liberal boomers who feel very frustrated. Like I'm liberal, man. I fought for these things. I fought for civil rights. I fought against civil or against the, <laughs> the civil war. That's not the boomers. I fought against the Vietnam war. Right. But then you have younger Americans who are like, cool, I appreciate you're doing that. But now we're on these new fights. These are the fights yeah, that matter. Yeah. And you, you're not you're not standing by our side in the way that we need you to mm -hmm. stand by our side. And so even on the left, there's tension between older and younger simply because the political fights that they're engaged in or were engaged in when boomers are younger are not the fights that are salient to young people today. And so you have all these ways in which there's tension between these two groups. And again, going back to that first one that I raised, which is fight over resources. Like, should we be spending money on senior housing or on yep. schools? I have yep. a very different position of that than I than someone who is a retiree for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Well, that gets us really into the second part of your book, which is uh, the future of power in America. Uh, let's take a quick break. Again, our guest, Philip Bump, uh, national columnist for The Washington Post, his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom, we've been talking about. Sorry, boomers, your days are come and gone, almost. Um, not quite, but almost, <laughs> heading in that direction. And the future of power in America. Quick break, and then we'll be right back. And today's podcast with Philip Bump brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Those are probably the union members that you most often meet in your daily life because they're the people that take good care of us, members of the UFCW under President Mark Perone. They're the ones we meet in our grocery stores, big retail markets, um, meat poultry, processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants, all the work the member, all the work of the members of the UFCW. We salute them for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back on the Bill Press Pod talking today with Philip Bump, who's uh, not only uh, a regular member of our roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you again for that, Philip. National columnist for The Washington Post, his day job and his newest appearance here as the author of The Aftermath. Very important new book, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Uh, I guess the first question, Philip, is welcome back, is what do the boomers have to do with the future of power in America anyhow? Yeah, I mean, boomers wield power in a moment. And so, I mean, that's not exclusively true, obviously, that they as I just, as we were talking about before the break, they're yeah. competing for power. Uh, but boomers still have a disproportionate representation in Congress. They have a disproportionate representation in the American economy. Uh, it is not the case that every boomer is wealthy, which I think is a misconception. And I think it fuels uh, some of the intergenerational tension that we see because boomers are like, I'm not rich. Why are you getting mad at me? Uh, you know, but there are just a lot of them. So the boomers collectively hold a lot of wealth. Uh, so boomers are making decisions now that obviously have long-term effects, right? They have mm -hmm. long-term effects in, if, for example, 
example, you're trying to decide whether you're going to spend on seniors or on children, the decision you make there potentially affects those children. Like if you decide not to invest heavily in schools, that has a long-term effect on those children, right? If you decide not to invest in long-term infrastructure to deal with climate change, that has a long-term effect on cities potentially, right? You know, there are the decisions that are made now are necessarily ones that affect the future of the country. And those decisions currently are being made by baby boomers. Right. So wouldn't you say is it fair to conclude, I guess, that this, these Gen X or millennials or Gen Y, whatever, uh, being younger, being not so uh, such a white population, um, are going to be more liberal, more progressive, more democratic, and therefore uh, a real problem for the Republican Party? Or a challenge, yeah. maybe is a better sure, word. Sure. No, I mean, I think problem <laughs> works too, potentially. Okay. But, right. yeah. you know, I mean, there there are two things to keep in mind. The first is that it is unlikely that this group is going to change its mind dramatically on politics. I spoke with researchers who found that essentially between the ages of 14 and 24 is when people that when people's political views were get cemented. Uh, and, you know, the millennials are past that point uh, by now. Uh, but you're saying they, once they're there, they're there. Huh? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's not universally sure. true, but generally speaking, um, and especially because, as I mentioned earlier, this is a group of people that is largely uh, is much more diverse uh, than younger generations have been in the past. So there's that. But of course, it's also the case that political parties are not static. Right. They, these are not organizations that just sit around like these are our positions forever. <laughs> right. The Democratic Party of 1950, for example, is not the Democratic Party of today. The Republican Party of 2000 isn't the Republican Party of today. Positions change. Approaches change. They tailor the messages that they're making uh, to the voters that they're trying to reach out to. And so the Republican Party absolutely can change who it is and what it stands for and what it does uh, based on who the electorate happens to be. And you saw this in 2012 after Mitt Romney lost. There was right. uh, this uh, uh, Republican Party that said, OK, we got to we got to do some mm -hmm. examination, figure out what we're going to do. And one of the things they said, and I spoke with the people who worked on this report, is they said, we got to reach out more to people who aren't white, essentially. And then Donald Trump came along and said, well, I think we can bring a lot more power out of white people over the course of the next few years. Right. Yep. And that's yep. what they did. Uh, but that's, you know, one of the things that happened after the 2022 sort of amazingly, and I think didn't get a lot of coverage, is that Ron McDaniel said, hey, you know what, maybe we need to start reaching out to non-white people more directly. Uh, and so they're they're back to that in part, I think, because over the course of the past you know 10 years, the, the, that older white population they've been appealing to under Trump, it continues to get older and isn't voting as much. Right. Um, I'm not sure it was in your book or some reading I did, you know, while I was while I was reading your book, that I saw that the numbers for the young vote, eight, so 18 to 29, uh, both in 2020, 2020 and 2022, the last presidential, the last midterms, that 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 age group, 63 percent voted Democratic, 35 percent Republican. And among women in that age group, 72 percent actually voted Democratic. So the post boomer politics could look very different from boomer politics. No, that's right. I mean, those numbers are not in my book, and those numbers are presumably based on exit polls, so you should absolutely take them with yeah. a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, however, the case. Pew Research Center, for example, tracks uh, partisan identification by uh, generational group, and they find that millennials, for example, are much more heavily Democratic, particularly among uh, white, you know, among women. A white millennial man 
tend to be more Republican than Democratic, which is worth noting. Uh, but, you know, they are a much smaller percentage. White men are a much smaller percentage of the millennial generation uh, than they were, for example, of the boomer generation. And so, you know, it, there are a lot of factors that play into this partisanship. But yeah, you're right. But it, but again, the Republican Party doesn't have to be the Republican Party it is today. Right. The, the right. Republican Party can lead. They could become climate change activists. They could, you know, they could yeah. embrace gay rights. They mm-hmm. could do all of these things theoretically yeah. if they wanted to and appeal all to right. young people. Um, and one of the <laughs> right. things that's fascinating is, you know, I spoke with a lot of historians who looked at the transition the party flip in the South in the after the civil rights era, uh, because obviously, if we're talking about what demographic, you know, how demography affects long term politics, you have to consider what happens. How do situations like that occur? And one of the things that happens when you speak to historians is they say, well, essentially what happened is the old white people who were Democrats died and then they had the same values as the young white people who came up as Republicans. It was just they had a different identity. Uh, and so, you know, the, these things can change, uh, but right. it often is generational as opposed to anything else. You, and you you also point out in the book, you do talk about this younger generation, younger voters. Uh, first of all, they're voting maybe in greater numbers, right, at, mm-hmm. as young people and running for office, too. You mentioned this group. Right run for something, which I've supported since they they were formed, but the, uh, expressly for the purpose of getting young people to run for city council or legislature or Congress, which is, yeah. this is a new phenomenon, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think it's part of a general effort in part because the millennial generation is so big and does feel as though uh, they don't have this the same seat at the table that older generations do. Uh, this is part of an effort to sort of get them more engaged in politics. One of the studies that I think is most fascinating that I elevated in the book was there was a look at how decisions around housing were made. Uh, and I'm I'm going to sort of get to your question through, through the back door here. Mm-hmm. But sure. uh, essentially what they did is they went and looked and saw who was commenting when there were, you know, you have to have these public hearings about building new housing. Who were the ones that were showing up and talking at those events? And they found that it was older people, but, you know, long-term registered voters who tended to own homes. And they often didn't want people to build new housing because they thought that they would decrease their property value. And of course, those property values are often used by people as retirement income. And so, you know, you'd see how, if you have a lot of boomers who are doing that, that affects it. One of the fascinating things, and this the reason I elevate the study in the book, is because even when they... Well, even when the pandemic kicked in and they started moving those meetings to Zoom, it still wasn't the case. Young people weren't participating in it. Even mm. non-homeowners weren't participating in those hearings. It was still homeowners, it was still older people. And so there is this need to both get young people engaged in these decisions now. And again, going back to your point about you know how boomers affect the future. Uh, but it is also the case you need to have people in the room who understand the issues that are important to young people. Uh, so in the book, for example, I talk about Alex Lee, a legislator in the South Bay of uh, you know, near San Jose in California, uh, right. who lived in his parents' house as he's running for office. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now when he's in Sacramento as a state legislator, he's very attuned to these issues of housing and the need for housing because that's his own background. Uh, and that's something that Run for Something puts a lot of emphasis on, and I think obviously can help reshape uh, the, the, the track for these generations. So the post-boomer power in America politics, um, if Florida was the boomer model, is Florida the post-boomer model or is there any other state that we would look to? Yeah, it's fascinating. If you look, so the Census Bureau uh, does projections for what American democracy is going to look like out to 2060. 
and if you look at what the projected demography of the country is in 2060 by race and age, it looks like what Florida is today. And uh-huh. I say that to people, and Democrats <laughs> lose their minds. You know, like, oh yeah. my God, is, you know, is Ron DeSantis going to be the president? You know, like, what's what's going to happen? Uh, you know, they're obviously very important qualifiers. One is that the Hispanic population in Florida doesn't look like the population Hispanic population nationally. It's very heavily Cuban American, which tends to be more Republican. Mm-hmm. And the older population, more importantly, is much more heavily white than the older population will be in 2060. So there are there are certainly these qualifiers, but it's also the case that in Florida there's been it's long been projected okay this as demographic shift the state's going to become more democratic and that that hasn't really happened uh it's yeah. happening more in texas for example or certainly in georgia that you know those things change if you look at the uh, the top 10 states that look most like what the census bureau expects the country to look like in 2060 nine of them are strong joe biden states uh you know new jersey for example is uh-huh. two, you know it's the yeah. second the state that looks second most like what the demography is going to look like so it is not the case that florida is necessarily politically where america's going but demographically that's what we should expect america to look more like where's california uh california's i think at that top 10 if i remember mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah uh so i was struck um uh where you wrap things up here, uh, actually, it's very close to the end, page 350 of your book and my copy here, um, you say there are three things we can say with certainty. One is the America the baby boomers were born into is long gone. Two, that the America they built is crumbling. Uh, And three, the big uncertainty is whether we're going to be left with a pile of ashes or a phoenix that <laughs> that rises from the ashes. <laughs> oh, sure. Please, <laughs> how do you see it? Well, you know, sometimes you got to add a little poetry to your book. I, I, no, I, I mean, love look, it. I the uh, it is absolutely the case that I mean, it's there's no debate that America doesn't look like what it looked like in 1945, and there's no debate that uh, what the baby boomer representation of America was and the way that America was for even when the baby boom was in its prime is not what America looks like at this point in time, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, including things like technology, right? I mean, like, that's just, mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with generations. Um, where do, do I, do you, essentially, you're asking how optimistic am I? And I am moderately uh, yeah. optimistic, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is, uh, uh, I think that there are real concerns. Uh, there's a guy, Tom Zaitsov, who's a, a professor who looks at democracy, who I've, who I spoke with uh, as I was doing the book. And he, he made a very good point, which is that America is not an old pluralist democracy. We pride ourselves in being an old democracy, but it's only been for the past 60 years or so that every American, regardless of race, has been able to participate in democracy evenly, right? And even that comes with qualifiers and caveats. And this is a moment at which that the idea of pluralistic democracy is being tested in the United States. And there are a lot of actors, both inside the United States and outside the United States, who are very eager to see this fail, who are very eager to see it be proven that you can't have a pluralistic democracy, that you must necessarily have a racially homogenous uh, society in order to be a democracy, which I don't believe, and I think most Americans don't believe. But this is a test moment. This, you know, this transition in large part is contributing to that test moment. And I think it's unresolved. I think that you know, 2020 and 2022 offered signs uh, of optimism in terms of whether, you know, autocratic impulses in the American electorate are, are going to carry the day. Uh, but I, I think it's still unresolved. And so have 
boomers, how have boomers contributed, getting back to boomers for a second, how have they contributed? Are they, have they been largely a pro-democracy group or largely, you know, the source of the um, questioning of democracy, if you will? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to see this generation that emerged in the aftermath of World War II now being part of this uh this embrace of autocracy, right? And it's, again, you know, it's easy to talk about these things in very flat terms. I don't think there are a lot of people who are like, I'm an autocrat now, right? It's just, that's not really how it works. But there are a lot of people who are like, you know what, mm -hmm. just make Donald Trump president and he does right. sort of make laws without Congress. And I'm happy with that. Or, you know, I think the America's going so sideways. I think, you know, we need to take up arms against the government, right? Like things like that are not you know, I am not an autocrat, but they are. They certainly get in that direction. Uh, there was fascinating polling that was conducted uh, by the Global Value Survey in 2017 that asked people in America if they supported the idea of just like having a leader who could make decisions and not have to worry about elections. Uh, the group that was most supportive of that idea actually was younger uh, Republicans. Uh, hmm. So older Republicans, presumably boomer age Republicans were more supportive when asked explicitly that question, basically, do you want an autocrat? They were less likely to say yes. Uh, so it may be more couched in these questions of, you know, race and identity and things along those lines. There may be, it, it may manifest differently than simply an explicit embrace of autocracy. Uh, but it certainly is the case that that, that uh, tendency does exist. Well, like you, I remain an optimist, but I remember Madeleine Albright, the great secretary of state, told me once that she said, I'm an optimist who worries a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that's right. Maybe we're all in that category. Sure. Um, Philip Bump, the, the book is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, a very in-depth and brilliant look at where we are today as a country and where we are heading. Philip, congratulations again on the book. There'll, there'll be a link uh, to uh, buy the book in the episode notes to today's podcast. And we thank you for your good work and thank you for your time. Good to talk to you as always. Thank you very much. You too. And that's it for today's podcast with uh, Philip Bump. Again, they'll be uh, in the episode notes to today's podcast, a link for you to purchase Philip's new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. You'll learn a lot, just as I did from the book. And now we'll let you go until Friday when we're back with uh, this week's roundtable. Lots to talk about this week. Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden sitting down to see if they can make a deal on the uh, raising the debt ceiling. I don't know why Biden's even meeting with McCarthy, but we'll talk about that. And there's a move in Congress to enact some tough police reform legislation in the wake of the murder of Tyre Nichols in Memphis. All of that we'll talk about on this week's roundtable on Friday. Have a great week. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod for Friday's roundtable.